We are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Royal Grammar School on Guildford High Street, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Um, Today's reading is from Mark 12, um, verses 1 to 37. So sit comfortably. Um, That's Mark 12. 1 to 37. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or, should we, or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same for the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. 
One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Morning, everyone. I'm Rahana, for those who don't know me. I've been part of Hope Church about nearly three years now. Um, I help to lead students in 20s work here as well. And uh, yeah, I'll be trying to preach through this very long passage this morning. Thanks, Rob, for reading all of that for us. Um, yeah, I hope everyone's doing well. And I know that this passage, I mean, there's at least three sermons in there. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of hard to know where to start or what to focus on, um, but God has kind of made it quite clear to me um, kind of what he wants to say to us this morning, um, and maybe it's just because I was asked to lead a seminar on a very similar section of this passage at CU recently, uh, but nevertheless, um, I think the Spirit is saying something to us, or at least certainly to me, um, so I will share what he's saying to me, and hopefully it will help you guys too. Um, so for a bit of context, I thought it'd be helpful for us to recap where we're at in our series in Mark's Gospel. So last week, we saw Jesus enter Jerusalem and Malcolm shared with us uh, this story of how faithful obedience prepares the way for Jesus to enter as king um, before comparing it to the following story where Jesus curses a fig tree and showing us that fruitless religion hinders the work of God. Um, oh, if people want Bibles, by the way, put your hand up. Someone can bring you a Bible. Um, sorry, I forgot to say that. Nope, we good? Nope. Okay, I'm switching to this one. Okay, cool. I'm switching microphones. Um, we're good. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but yeah, if people want a Bible, um, do put your hand up. Obviously, it's great to have God's Word open as we go through it. Um, but yeah, so last week, we basically, we heard the story of Palm Sunday, which for those of us who know the Easter story, we know the significance. We know that last week's passage marked the beginning of the end for us and for this story. We're entering Jesus's last week um, of his ministry before his death and resurrection. It's kind of that bit in the film. It's the team gearing up before, before the final action sequence. 
it's the start of Act 5, if you like a Shakespeare play. Um, and I think, actually, it's quite fitting that we've reached this point in the story just as Lent has started, um, because now we're entering the season of waiting and preparation for Easter. And so we reach today's passage, and the tension has definitely upped. Following his lash out in the temple courts, the Jewish leaders and teachers are even more wary of Jesus than they already were. And you can see that here because they throw question after question after question at him, interrogating him in a way that they think is going to kind of catch him out or say something that um, incriminates him. Uh, But Jesus answers all of their questions and he does so well before that final section where we see him pose a question to them. So in this vein of Jesus being questioned, I want to start kind of with a question uh, for us to think about and just reflect on in our heads um, for a moment. And my question is this. What do you think it looks like to someone completely? To love someone completely. I ask this question because at the end of this interrogation of Jesus, the thing that finally kind of gets the crowd to stop asking questions and to shut up um, is this commandment. Love, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus calls the people to love God with everything to love him completely. And he says that this is the greatest commandment. He's right, of course, uh, because obedience to all other commandments could only flow out of our love for God. But it's also terrifying because the more I see of human nature and the more I see of how big and how good God is, it's clear to me that it's going to be near impossible for us in this lifetime to be able to love God completely. Our broken human attempts at love with each other and for God are never going to come close to his unconditional, perfect love. Um, Agape, which is the Greek word for it. Um, Yeah, that he lavishes lavishes over us. And uh, maybe that's a bit overwhelming and maybe that seems a bit of a downer to start this preach on. Um, But there is hope and I want to talk about that hope because there's hope in the fact that the scribe who asked this question which is the only earnest question in this whole chapter, by the way. Um, But yeah, when he asks this question, he acknowledges that this commandment is the greatest. And Jesus is right to point that out to them. And Jesus responds to him by telling him that he is not far from the kingdom of God. And I think there's also hope in the fact that actually all the questions and all the parables in this passage leading up to this one genuine question can help us to understand human nature better Um, In particular, I think these questions from the Pharisees and from the leaders actually help us to understand some of the things that hold us back from loving God fully and the things that they put before God, the things that we can so easily fall into the same trap of doing. So whilst I've started towards the end of this passage, I'm now going to jump back through the whole of chapter 12 somehow um, and look at how these three different stories show us something of the, so show, us, show us something that prevents us from loving God with our, all our heart, mind, soul and strength. So we'll look at the parable of the tenants, um, a story that shows the Pharisees putting people before God. 
And then I'll take a moment to look at that next story where Jesus talks about taxes, thinking about putting kind of political and social views before God. And then we'll look at the Sadducees question and the temptation to put relationships and the things of this world before God. And I then want to just spend some time thinking about what Jesus' commandment means for us. Um, Yeah, so whilst I said, obviously, that this chapter is kind of an interrogation and it's just a question time, the chapter actually starts with a parable rather than a question. And in this parable, we see the owner of a vineyard, um, a well-planted, well-protected vineyard, send servants to collect the fruit. And as the parable goes on, the violence escalates and the servants just get more brutally treated. The first gets beaten, the second gets struck on the head, the third gets killed. The final servant, who is painted as the one last hope for humanity and this situation, is the the vineyard owner's son. And Jesus takes care to tell us that this son is loved by the father. But this son is also killed, and he's killed purely from selfish motives. The vineyard workers say to each other, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They want the riches and the fruits of the vineyard, but pay no care to the one who planted it, the one who provided the place and those he chooses to represent him. His story ends with a quote from Psalm 118, in which it's acknowledged that the rejected servant from this story is the stone that the builders rejected and the one that will become the cornerstone, the central piece that holds everything together. This parable serves as a warning of what will happen to those who reject Jesus because Jesus tells us that the vineyard was taken away from them. Um, And the chief priests, the elders, teachers of the law, they all knew knew that Jesus was telling this story aimed at them. Uh, For those who are familiar with social media, I kind of thought it's almost like subtweeting, which is basically when you make a vague post about someone, which is very clearly about them, but you don't tag them in it. You don't directly mention them. Um, and that's what Jesus has done here. Um, but they, they, they know. They know it's for them. Um, and for us, that kind of knowledge of the fact it's about Jesus comes with the hindsight of knowledge of the rest of the Easter story um, and what's to come in the following days. But for those leaders, it can seem strange for us that they knew so clearly what Jesus meant. Um, but actually, Jesus shaped this parable so that they specifically knew this. This picture of a vineyard is one that would have been hugely familiar to the crowds who heard this story. And that's because it's one that's already been used in scripture. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah shares this song that an owner of a vineyard has over his land. And much like in Jesus's parable, it starts by showing us the love that the vineyard owner has, showing the care he takes to dig it up, plant the best vines, build a watchtower and cut out a wine press. However, this vineyard then yields no good fruit. It's only bad fruit. And so the vineyard owner takes away the vineyard that yields no good crop, and he breaks down the wall and makes it an uncultivated wasteland. And while the use of analogy here still feels quite vague, Isaiah is very clear in his meaning in chapter 5. And in verse 7, he says specifically, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. The religious leaders in this story 
know this story is about them because Jesus uses imagery in a way that wants them to know. He specifically uses this image that has been used as the image of the people of God and the nation of Israel. And yet even with that knowledge, even with the fact they know they're being clearly called out and provoked, they don't actually do anything about it. It says they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. And the Pharisees aren't doing this to be clever or strategic. Um, Yeah, they're not retaliating because they're being proud. They're paying more heed to the people around them than to Jesus. The Jesus who has just told a story in which he's referred to himself as the son of God. And the Jesus who has just directly told them that their treatment of God's servants will lead to them not enjoying the rewards and riches of his provision. Because make no mistake, as much as this parable is a warning, it is also a reminder of God's provision. Um, It's a reminder that God has fully provided for his people. Uh, He's provided by planting and growing his nation in the first instance. And he's provided by building protection and providing the resources that they need to bear fruit. And he's even provided people to do his will. And yet the nation of Israel, the people of God, reject this in favour of selfishness and pride. And this is actually the second time in as many chapters that Mark has told us that the teachers of the law feared the people. At the end of chapter 11, which is actually the start of these kind of question after question, um, at the end of it, um, there's a question about Jesus's authority. And basically the Pharisees just skirt around it and say, oh, I don't know, even though they do, they do know the answer, but they don't want to say it because they know it's going to make them look bad. And it says specifically that they feared the crowd. Um, they don't want to affirm Jesus' authority, but they, don't, they also don't want to upset the crowds. And they insert themselves into this difficult situation because they value their pride so much. And I think it's easy for us to do the same. We ignore the provision God has given us and selfishly want more of the fruits Um, of his kingdom while disrespecting God and the son whom he loved. Many of us have had situations where we've been asked about our faith and specific implications of our faith and instead of acknowledging Jesus's authority we have rejected him. We've kind of thrown Jesus under the bus and we're paying more attention to people's responses than to Jesus and than to what Jesus wants for us. In the culture we live in, the scripture so often sits at odds with acceptable ways of living um, that those in secular spheres hold to. But the answer to this isn't to fear the crowd and walk away. When Jesus speaks directly to us, we need to acknowledge what he's saying and acknowledge who he is. He is the cornerstone. He is the center To love the Lord your God is to recognise God's provision and respond differently to the tenants in this parable and differently to the Pharisees hearing it because we cannot put people before God. The next question that Jesus has thrown at him is that about whether the Jewish people should be paying taxes to Caesar. So this question is posed at a time which was quite tumultuous politically And the Jews are paying taxes, but they're paying them begrudgingly because they're going to the Roman emperor rather than kind of their leaders and the leaders they've chosen. Um, And it's kind of a case of it's not just an issue of the money. It's an issue of the principle of paying tax to this government that they didn't choose. But Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy 
And with this kind of physical example of pulling out a coin, he shows them that Caesar's head is on the coin. And what's in almost like a mic drop moment where everyone must have been going, oh my goodness, um, he utters that famous line, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, in a literal sense, it seems that these short verses are just a short aside, reminding people to pay their taxes and be good citizens. And whilst Jesus is saying that, um, it's something that Paul also then reaffirms in Romans 13. The context in which the question is being asked is key to how we understand Jesus' response. Um, so first of all, Mark tells us that this question is being asked by two different groups, which is the Pharisees and Herodians. Um, these two groups were enemies. They did not get along. They did not share similar views. But they've come here together for one reason only, and that's to catch Jesus out. They want to trip him up in his words. Both groups are looking for completely different answers from the question because both of them want to affirm their own viewpoint. If Jesus says, pay the taxes, one group is going to say, oh, well, that's him supporting the oppressor. Whereas if he said, don't pay your taxes, he's inciting civil disobedience and rebellion. There's seemingly no way to win. And yet Jesus manages to give an answer that both acknowledges the sovereignty of God by marking this difference between what is God's and what is Caesar's. But he also keeps firmly within the civil law. He encourages them to be good citizens. And the Pharisees and Herodians were looking to use Jesus to boost their political and social opinion. And I think that's something we see as much today as they did back then, if not even more so. However, Jesus' response shows us that this can't be done. Jesus' words should inform and shape our political and social opinions, but we don't use Jesus at to, like he's not our tool or prop. He is the one who takes precedence and not our cultural views. So yes, the people are called to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but they're also called to give to God what is God's. And that latter is infinitely more than the former. In this passage, Jesus reminds us that we're both citizens of heaven and earth at the same time. And to live in that and to live in a way that honours that kind of dual citizenship is to give the money to Caesar, but our lives to God. To love the Lord your God fully is not to use him as a playing card or a tick point in an agenda, but to know what is rightfully his, which is our lives, our love, ourselves, our worship, and to give it to him. So the third question. The third question comes from the Sadducees, who were kind of a Jewish sect who didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, they were fairly well off. They did well culturally and politically. They had a real kind of standing in society. And so they come, these resurrection deniers, and they ask a question about the resurrection, um, which seems ironic because obviously they don't believe in it. But again, it's this case of they're trying to catch Jesus out. And this time they use Moses's words from Deuteronomy 25 about marriage and about what happens if um, um, to a woman if her husband dies. And yeah, um, But to do it, they make up this kind of crazy scenario about seven brothers who each die with the first brother's wife being, ending up being married to each of them at some point. And then they give this question to Jesus, feeling quite smug about themselves, thinking, aha, we're going to catch him out because he's either going to have to deny the resurrection 
or he's going to have to affirm polygamy and both obviously go against Jewish teaching. Um, but the Sadducees have made a key error here, and that's that they're applying the rules and understanding of this world to Jesus and the new creation and heaven and, yeah, and to the resurrection. And they don't understand or trust that God has made his people for something bigger than just this world and just this time. And so they find meaning in the things they know, money, power, marriage. Jesus turns their question back on them and points out their error. Marriage doesn't exist in the new creation, um, and scripture has already said that to them. So their analogy is just a moot point. In our last talk series, we looked at God's design for marriage and sex and relationships, and we saw that it's all really good. But we also saw that marriage is not the be-all and end-all, and that marriage is not the gospel, and it's not what we put our hope in. Here, the Sadducees have failed to love God fully because they put their hope in the here and now and the things they know, understanding things through our lens rather than through God's. The second that we treat marriage or money or career or status as the things we're living for, we neglect the fact that none of these things are going to be carried with us in the new creation. Um, What will be with us is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 18 says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. To love the Lord your God fully is not to place your stakes in your current relationships or your current place in the world, but it's to focus on the relationship that will be with us, that we carry with us to the new creation, and that's our one with God and with Jesus. And so, after all these kind of tricky questions and all these games to catch Jesus out, we arrive back at this one genuine, earnest question from a scribe who's been impressed at how Jesus has handled all his responses up until this point. A scribe who just wants to know what commandment Jesus considers the most important. And of course, as we've already heard, Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. I think this morning, as we've been worshipping, we have heard a lot about God's love for us, and how unconditional it is, and how that shapes us. But here, it's that reminder of God loves us, and in turn, we are commanded to love him, and to show him how much we love him. And the response of this guy who asks the question is to say, yeah, Jesus, you're right. To to love God with all of that in all things is better than any burnt offerings or sacrifice. Um, It says in 1 Samuel in chapter 15, it says to obey is better than to sacrifice. Love always wins out over legalism, um, but we are also called to obedience. Love, to love the Lord your God is to be obedient to him, is to recognise that it's not just heart and soul, it's not just emotion, it is with our mind, it's with our strength, it is actively learning how to love God well. Because, as I've already said, every other act of obedience is empty if we don't love God first, if it doesn't come from this heart of God is bigger. Um, Yeah, and... 
I don't know if I really, I asked the question at the beginning of what does it mean to love someone completely? Um, I don't think I have the answer to that in this world and in this life for us. But I think what's great is that the commandment to love others here flows out of a love for God. And what it means to love your God with your heart, mind, soul and strength is something we're taught throughout scripture. We're told in not so many words because we're told all the things we can put above God. But we're also told we shouldn't be putting those things above God. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments is have no gods before me. It's recognising that God is who he says he is and he is bigger. And that's actually worthy of our love. That's worthy of our praise. I think in particular what we learn from the story of the parable of the tenants is reminding ourselves as well that not only is God bigger but he has sent Jesus to us. He has shown us the ultimate act of love by sending his son and what it says in the psalm that Jesus quotes where he talks about the stone that the builders rejected being the cornerstone in the context of the psalm it's talking specifically about a cornerstone in the building of a gate that we enter to achieve righteousness um, and it's only Jesus who opens that gate for us it's Jesus's work on the cross it's Jesus being sent and rejected by his people. It's Jesus dying. Um, and obviously, as we come into the season, when we think about Easter, as we prepare to kind of sit at the foot of the cross, that, that should be our focus. That is what compels us to love God more. We can't think about love for God in the world's terms. Um, as much as I think there's lots of plenty of great things to say about love in the way we understand it, because I think a lot of us understand love as sacrifice and um, putting people above ourselves. There's, there's no way to understand it purely in those terms because God isn't human. God isn't broken. God isn't sinful. We can love him knowing that he is good and he is faithful to us. And I don't think we often think of love as obedience, but that obedience does come from a joy and a gratitude in what Jesus has done for us. And that love is in response to God's provision, um, the provision I talked about earlier, but also in his provision of Jesus. But it is recognising as well that full love of God also equals love for other people, um, loving our neighbour as ourselves. And to love them as ourselves isn't to love them only when they're right. It's not only to love them when we're happy with them, but it's to love them the way God loves them, to see them the way God sees them. Yeah, in, in our human state, we can never love anyone completely, but God has sent his spirit to help us do that. And that is what draws us to the kingdom of God, because that's what Jesus says to this man when he answers this, when he asks about this question. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God, because he recognizes that to love God is everything. Um, yeah, full love equals God over people and what they think. It equals God over our politics. It equals God over our relationships and the things of this world. And it is recognising God being who he is. Um, obviously, at the moment, it's been a really hard time for the world the last few weeks. Um, and for us as a church, it's been a hard time as well. And I think, actually, this last month, I've felt more connected to God than I have in a while because I've been able to recognise that God is bigger. Um, God is bigger than all these things and he has just reminded me of that and 
that when we can't see what's happening, when we have no control, God has control. And that's really encouraging. That's really helpful. That is why he is worthy of our love. Um, Yeah. And obviously this response that Jesus gives, this commandment to love, as I said earlier, that's the commandment. That's the final thing that kind of gets the crowds to suddenly stop asking questions. But it's not the end of questions in this passage. There's one kind of weird little section at the end. Um, But it's not them asking Jesus a question. It's Jesus posing a question to them. And this question gets to the heart of the matter, which is asking them, basically, do you recognize who I am? Do you know who I am? And he asks them, why do you say the Messiah is the son of David? Because even David calls him Lord. He is acknowledging that he is the son of God and he is Lord. And they don't know that, but he asks them that. So this kind of question time of Jesus, it starts with this question of who gives Jesus authority? And it ends with him asserting that authority by answering with his identity. And I think if we know that identity, we know that he is Lord, that he is sovereign. How can we not love him in that? How can we not want to love him in that? And we will fail um, day in, day out. We will fall short as the gospel tells us, Romans 3 tells us. But actually the whole way through scripture, God gives us reasons to love him. And the New Testament tells us that he has given his spirit to help us love him practically in this world and in this life. Um, yeah, I just, I just really want to get that, get that across that actually that is our calling, that is the commandment, is to love God in everything. And all else will flow from that. Um, yeah, I just want to pray for us that God would help us love him rightly. Um, Lord, I just thank you so much that you are so big, you are so faithful, you are so good. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you're in control. We thank you that you've chosen us. Um, You have not rejected us, as uh, Marissa read to us earlier from Isaiah. We thank you that, yeah, you want us to know you. You want us to love you. May you help us in that day in, day out. May you help us individually. May you help us as a church. May you just remind us of your kindness to us, that we would... We would know what a joy and a privilege it is to love you. Amen. I just want to end with a passage from Colossians. Um, I know we've had a lot of Colossians this morning. I didn't know James was going to be reading from the same bit, basically. Um, But this is also the passage that we ended Wednesday's meeting on as well. So this is Colossians 3, um, verses 12 to 17. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen people... Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful that the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, 
do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thanks for listening. We meet on Sundays at 10am at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.